This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello everyone, and welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. An article titled, Path of the Skinwalker, Part 1, printed in the Las Vegas Mercury, November 21st, 2002, written by George Knapp, K-N-A-P-P, author of Hunt for the Skinwalker, and investigator for National Institute for Discovery Science, or NIDS, N-I-D-S, reads this way. I'm sitting on a white plastic chair in what seems like total darkness. Strapped to my chest and shoulders is an array of electronic gear, microphones, a video camera, a box that detects magnetic changes, and a Geiger counter. Somewhere in the mix is a flashlight, the only device whose function I understand, and thus the only device I cannot find. In front of me, I can almost make out the sinister shapes of some truly spooky trees. Malevolent bugs are buzzing in and out of my eyes and ears, and it occurs to me that there must be a tavern open somewhere nearby, even in this remote corner of Utah. One hundred or more yards away, beyond a barbed wire fence and a little creek, are my fellow paranormal rangers, equipped with their own video cameras, night vision glasses, and assorted scientific gear. They are supposed to be watching me to see if anything happens. On this night, I am the bait. Bait for what, I wonder? The unspoken hope is my own inherent weirdness quotient which might give me some sort of connection to the undeniably odd energy or entity that seems to have concentrated himself on this remote rural community, and in particular on this small ranch where I now sit waiting for something to announce its presence. Some very strange things have happened at the precise spot where I am sitting. It is here that a visitor was accosted by a roaring but nearly invisible creature, something akin to the predator of movie fame. It is here that a Ph.D. physicist reported that his mind was invaded, literally taken over by some sort of hostile intelligence that warned him that he was not welcome. It is here that an entire team of researchers watched in awe as a bright door or portal opened up in the darkness and a large humanoid creature crawled out before quickly vanishing. And it is here that several animals, cattle and dogs, were mutilated, obliterated, or simply disappeared. The article goes on to explain the very strange history of what is called the Skinwalker Ranch in Utah owned at least through 2004 by billionaire investor Robert Bigelow, who, out of interest in the paranormal, bought the ranch formerly owned by a family who couldn't wait to get the hell out of there due to the weird and threatening occurrences that began on the day they assumed the property, and never stopped. Bigelow founded an investigative research company called NIDS, short for National Institute for Discovery Science, which, if my information is correct, received a sizable government grant courtesy of Bigelow's friend, Senator Harry Reid, in an effort to find out 
just what is going on in that corner of Utah. George Knapp was, by his account, the only reporter ever allowed on the property while it was occupied by Nitz. Knowing the history of that ranch, I wouldn't have done it. All night long, belted in a chair, would you? Skinwalker Ranch is only a part of our story today, but it's important because the working theory behind it is that a portal to the unknown exists, and that all sorts of things have, according to a slew of witnesses, come through. Hundreds of questions, of course, arise, beginning with, what kind of creatures? Are they responsible for cattle mutilations? Do they come from another time or dimension? And are they dangerous to people? Fair enough. Fair questions, I would say. It's far more easy just to say none of this is legit. It's all made up. And let's move on. But I'll let the skeptics do that. This is one heck of a story. And by the way, a big shout out to you folks from the land down under who have been enjoying all our 1001 shows in huge numbers. All countries, send me your missing stories. My email link is in the show notes. It's 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. And we'll do a special Vanished International episode. Sorry, shark attacks don't count. We're wondering if your land sharks have been as active as what we apparently have in North America. We've got to get to the bottom of what's going on here because a lot of innocent people are disappearing. It's time for our story. The folks living in northeastern Utah in the Uintah Valley south of Fort Duchesne are no strangers to unexplained phenomena. UFOs, Sasquatch, cattle mutilations, psychic manifestations, weird creatures, otherworldly events. Pick any one and you could fill a book, and people have. The Skinwalker Ranch is vacant now, gated, with no trespassing signs posted everywhere. But they silently come at night, coming over the gates and roaming the secluded ranch south of Fort Duchesne. They make flashing lights in the windows, and they're heard clawing to get into the ranch house. They terrify the elderly couple now living there. They make objects on the ranch frequently disappear, never to be seen again, or to be found later somewhere else. Like eBay. Because they are two-legged human life forms with no respect for other people. Lucky the caretakers don't like to shoot at shadows, living or otherwise. But in past days, the Uintah Basin Skinwalker Ranch was known worldwide for tales of sometimes graphic paranormal activity stretching from the mid-1800s to just a few years ago. The 480-acre ranch purchased by Bigelow in 1996, as mentioned, was the site of a laboratory for National Institute for Discovery Science, an organization Bigelow founded to investigate anomalous activity from a professional, scientific standpoint. Adamantium Real Estate acquired the ranch in April of 2016. According to one source, for business purposes, the owner of Adamantium Real Estate has to remain anonymous. 
The caretakers are an older couple that maintain the ranch and property. We just have so many problems with trespassers and people down here and vandalism, and it's very, very scary, said the elderly woman who, with her husband, is a caretaker for the ranch. It's really bad, and we really hate it, and we don't want to be bothered. We're bothered constantly, day and night. Although reports of the anomalous activity at the ranch have been nearly non-existent since the early 2000s, the property is legendary for its recorded history of unexplained and other frightening events. The most publicized events on the land occurred in the 1990s and included mysterious balls of light, outlandish creatures, UFOs, and cattle mutilations. But the lore of the land itself is far older. The ranch is surrounded by the Uinta and Ure Indian Reservation, and bands of the Ute tribe lived in the region for centuries before the arrival of pioneers in the mid-1800s. According to Joseph Jr. Hicks, an 89-year-old retired science teacher from Roosevelt at the time he was interviewed, and he's considered an expert on regional UFO sightings and unexplained occurrences, as well as local Indian history. According to him, the Utes fought to expel the Navajo from the basin shortly before the arrival of white settlers. The Navajo eventually left the basin and its prime hunting to the Utes, but left upon them the curse of a spirit that could take the form of a human, wolf, or some say, any animal. Said Hicks, the Navajos lost, and they in turn cursed the Utes with a skinwalker, saying a spiritual person that changes into a wolf will be here to harass you. And they accepted that, said Hicks. And so, the skinwalker animal seemed to be on that ridge that they now call the Skinwalker Ridge. He went on to say, The UFO activity really started getting intense in the early 50s. There were cases where the whole school and all the teachers saw those things hovering over the town in broad daylight. In the 60s and 70s, we probably had more UFO sightings than any place in the world. But run-of-the-mill UFO events don't begin to describe the rich array of unusual phenomena in that area. The Ute Indian tribe has been there far longer than white settlers. Tribal leaders are reluctant to speak to outsiders, but their oral history is replete with examples of strange creatures and sightings. Indian lore refers to some of these beings as skinwalkers. Other cultures call them shapeshifters, werewolves, or even Bigfoot. Skinwalker Ridge, as it's informally known, looms to the north of the ranch's pastures. Its crest is part of the ranch property. It lives in that area, said Hicks, pointing to a reporter. They, the Utes, wouldn't even come by or get near it. They just steer clear of it. They see him moving around on the ridge. They don't know if he has a home there or what, but quite often he's there. So they stay away entirely, and many people won't have anything to do with it. Hicks said that the Myers family settled the ranch in 1905, making a small homestead of a few buildings on the property's northwest corner at the foot of Skinwalker Ridge at the edge of their fields. The original homestead was abandoned after the Myers moved to a home on the eastern side of the ranch. The ranch in question is a 480-acre spread of rich, well-watered pasture and a few thick patches of tall cottonwoods. A long dirt road is the only way in or out of the ranch. Although Hicks said the family didn't report any strange occurrences, neighbors experienced strange happenings, and the next owners of the ranch, the Sherman family, 
when the Sherman family moved to the ranch in 1994 to breed hybrid cattle. They were curious about the impressive array of bolts that covered the doors and windows of the main house, wrote Knapp in 2002. There were dead bolts on both sides of the doors. Even the kitchen cabinets had bolts on them, and at both ends of the house, iron stakes and heavy chains had been installed. Sherman guessed the previous tenants had positioned large guard dogs in the front and back of the home, but he had no idea why. They hadn't been there long when a large wolf trotted up to them as they were unloading their truck. It seemed friendly, almost tame, but its eyes were very strange. They even petted it, noting that its fur was wet and smelled like wet dog fur. As the story goes, they tried to shoo it away when it neared the corral where they had some calves, but it ignored them, grabbing one calf's head in its massive jaws and clamping down. The owner went for his handgun in the truck. His son grabbed a large stick, and when beating the wolf with the stick didn't deter it, Sherman shot it three times with his three fifty-seven Magnum. The wolf let go of the calf's bloody snout and just stared at them, not showing any signs of distress or loss of blood from the wounds. Then it took three more shots, this time from a high-powered rifle that the son had brought, one shot of which dislodged a chunk of meat and fur. Then it just trotted off toward the ridge and the tree line, not to be seen again. But other creatures were seen, sometimes shadowy. One identified, after resorting to looking up mythical animals, as a chupacabra, chasing one of their horses in the meadow. Chupacabras have never been identified as a species and go far back into the folklore of Puerto Rico and Chile, but they've also been spotted in Maine and in the American Southwest. The word means goat suckers, and legend has it that they attack livestock such as goats, pigs, and cattle and suck the blood from their victims. They're described as reddish, lacking much hair, but low and powerful, like small bears, but faster, with spines running along the top of their backs. The first reported attack eventually attributed to the chupacabra occurred in March 1995 in Puerto Rico. Eight sheep were discovered dead, each with three puncture wounds in the chest area, and completely drained of blood. A few months later, in August, an eyewitness, Madeline Tolentino, reported seeing the creature in the Puerto Rican town of Canavanas, when as many as 150 farm animals and pets were reportedly killed. In 1975, similar killings in the small town of Mocha were attributed to El Vampiro de Mocha, the vampire of Mocha. Initially, it was suspected that the killings were committed by a satanic cult. Later, more killings were reported around the island, and many farms reported loss of animal life. Each of the animals was reported to have had its body bled dry through a series of small circular incisions. <coughs> animal experts say they are most likely mange-affected dogs or coyotes. Witnesses say otherwise. At the ranch, strange things continued to happen to the new family. Shafts of light rose like pillars from the ground. Fields lit up like stadiums. Bigfoot-esque beasts terrorized the family. Noises of machinery were heard underground. A massive, semi-visible, shapeless entity terrorized the Shermans and visitors, and multiple people often simultaneously heard a deep, incomprehensible, disembodied voice speaking to them. "'seemingly from above. "'UFOs the size of large planes "'were spotted over the property 
by the Shermans and their neighbors, and small orbs of varying size and opacity floated around the property and seemed to inspect livestock. Could those orbs have been lights connected to an invisible craft? No one knows. The owner would see some of those hybrid cattle disappear or be mutilated, and he was very much worried about it, so he called on me to look at it, said Hicks. Real strange types of things. Animals killed. Blood was gone. No blood. And certain organs were missing. Eyes, nose, genitalia, so on. So that was quite a puzzling thing for them for a while. And then we had some of the strange animals show up when Sherman was there. He tried shooting some of them, and of course... The bullets had no effect. And this note to our listeners. We did an entire show on cattle mutilations. Still a huge unsolved mystery with the FBI. A few months back at 1001 Heroes. And if you missed it, you might want to catch up. If you're not handy with archives, try 1001storiespodcast.com. I'll also put it in the show notes for you here, along with lots of other links that we supply. Strange disturbances in their home left the Sherman family with no safe place and they all slept together, huddled on the floor of one room. The final straw was when Terry Sherman sent his three dogs to chase glowing blue orbs. The dogs disappeared into the woods after the softball-sized spheres, and each yelped loudly before falling silent. The next day, all Sherman found in the woods was scorched ground and three lumps of burnt tar, flesh, and hair. Having had enough The Shermans put the ranch up for sale in 1996, and Bigelow, who had read about the anomalous events in a June 96 Deseret News article, bought the property to research the stories. He also convinced the Shermans to remain on the ranch for a few more years to aid the researchers in observing and documenting unexplained events. How he did that is the biggest mystery in this story. While many thought the influx of researchers would expose the stories as myth Just the opposite seemed to occur. The NIDS researchers installed sophisticated monitoring equipment at the ranch in hopes of detecting paranormal activity. One of the theories explored by George Knapp and Dr. Colm Kelleher in their book Hunt for the Skinwalker, now a movie documentary, is that the area surrounding Skinwalker Ranch is some sort of portal for interdimensional activity, a place where the world is thin, a hot spot. This is exemplified by the large creatures and vehicles observed traversing on what appears to be orange glowing geometric holes around the ranch. The observations made by scientists like Dr. Colm Kelleher and Dr. Eric Davis were similar to technical descriptions of the optical nature of wormholes, as detailed in a physical review paper by John Kramer, Matt Visser, and Bob Forward. However, Both authors of Hunt for the Skinwalker make it clear that nobody really knows what we're dealing with or what they were dealing with at the ranch. There is no simple definition or explanation for the occurrences there. Any sole theory you try to apply to the ranch and the surrounding area simply falls short. It's a disturbing mystery. Disturbing because it reveals how little we really know about the physics and nature of the world we live in. Faced with the events at Skinwalker Ranch, consensus reality seems to fall short. This brings us full circle to Paulides and his missing 411 books, the subject of part one of this series. This show is supported by State Farm. 
Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. His suspicion is that some of the unexplained disappearances that are taking place, especially the ones involving people that disappear into thin air, are being caused by a race of creatures from another dimension. They may resemble what we think of as Bigfoot, as that description has been a common one going back to Indian legends. The skeptic side of our brains tell us it's human predators and that they're on the increase. The troubling issue here is that in many cases, if it were a human predator, they would have been discovered in the act. Once you accept the fact that there have been thousands of Bigfoot sightings, yet one has never been killed or captured, if you're going to believe that even one of these sightings is legitimate, you might as well accept the fact that these creatures may be able to pass through some type of portal to a coexisting dimension, or they may be shapeshifters capable of invisibility, one of the two. And if either is true, and if any of these beings are dangerous and want to do harm to humans or animals, there isn't a whole lot we can do to stop them. And, when visible, they may also look just like ordinary people, not like ten-foot-tall humanoids. One would have no way of knowing. Just like the fifty-something lady that the Iraq veteran saw approaching him in part one. Here one second gone the next. Paulides' greatest asset to solving these types of cases is the fact that he catalogs them and notes similarities that keep popping up again and again. For instance, many victims are young. Many have disabilities, like autism. Many are with animals at the time they go missing. Many, both adult and child, are just out of sight of the people they are with. Many are in wilderness or park areas. Many either leave articles of clothing behind, or if they are found, are missing clothing or shoes or socks. Some that survive have no knowledge of what happened to them, or how they got to where they were found. Some examples. A state civilian road crew is working on North Carolina Road. There's nothing on this stretch of road except pines and a ditch. A barbed wire fence borders one side, denoting that as private property. Both sides are fairly swampy ground. It's not the kind of country where you want to pull off your work boots and go for a hike without telling anybody. The foreman announces a break, and they all begin walking single file back to the truck and the waiting cooler. The last guy in line, a young man named Lane, is missing when they reach the truck. This is a shock in itself because he was only a few yards behind the last man in line. So they walk back the 50 yards or so to check. Coins from his pockets are lying on the road. One boot is in the ditch. Some small blue pieces of his blue pants are found on the barbed wire. They all call and shout for him. They go looking. 
No Lane. A search party finds nothing. If you were Lane and you suddenly wanted to leave, why would you empty your pockets on the road? Then take off one boot. Then struggle to climb a barbed wire fence. Three months later, his second boot was found 900 feet into and beyond the woods in a farm field by a farmer. Lane's family was well known in the community, and Lane was known and respected. He had no reason to run away. It sounds more like he was suddenly picked up, turned upside down, and was dragged over the fence and away. By who or what, your guess is as good as mine. So I took a minute from my typing to search for any recent information on this story, and up comes a new one. The headline, GSMNP, Crews from North Carolina Assist in Search for Missing Hiker. Updated September 29, 2018. Tennessee. Great Smoky Mountains National Park Rangers are searching for a 53-year-old woman from Cleves, Ohio, who was last seen in the Clingman's Dome area of the park on Tuesday, September 25th. Mitzi Sue Susan Clements was hiking with her daughter on the Forney Ridge Trail near Andrews Bald when the two separated. She was last seen around 5 p.m., approximately a quarter of a mile from Andrews Bald. Trained personnel from cooperating agencies in Tennessee, North Carolina, and Virginia have responded to assist park staff in a large-scale search effort for the missing woman in steep, rugged terrain. As of Saturday, around 125 trained searchers and logistical support personnel from more than 30 state and local agencies and search and rescue organizations are participating in the search operation led by the National Park Service. Helicopters and multiple canine teams have been deployed for the search effort. Specialized search and rescue drones operated by FAA licensed pilots are being used in some areas to help search for Clements. By closing the seven-mile Clingman's Dome Road on Thursday night, the park was able to transform the Clingman's Dome parking area into a field incident command post from which to manage the complex search. Infrastructure such as tents and self-contained mobile command buses serve as portable offices for search personnel and provide a place for searchers to escape the elements, refuel, and receive instructions before heading back out to continue the search for Clements. Rangers have now brought in a mobile cell tower from Verizon Wireless to provide wireless service to assist in search efforts. The SPOT, satellite Pico cell on a trailer, features a 30-foot antenna mast with a satellite dish on top of the trailer, which includes a portable mini-satellite dish to provide additional wireless service for first responders searching in remote areas where reception might be spotty. Park officials were alerted that Clements was missing on Tuesday evening and began searching the immediate area with no success. On Wednesday, officials expanded the search area and additional personnel were called in to search. Wednesday night, Experienced searchers spent the night on the Appalachian Trail attempting to locate Clements and to interview any hikers in the area. The search continued Thursday morning with approximately 40 trained members of the park's search and rescue team. On Thursday evening, the Park Service announced that the entire length of Clingman's Dome Road would close to vehicles tonight and will remain closed until further notice. Susan Clements is a white female with light brown hair and blue eyes. She's 5 foot 6 tall and weighs 125 pounds. 
"'She is wearing a green zip-up sweater, "'black workout pants over black leggings, "'a clear rain poncho, and white tennis shoes. "'Anyone who saw Clements on Tuesday afternoon or since "'is asked to contact the National Park Service "'Investigative Services Branch "'through one of the following methods. "'Call, and then they provide the number. "'So here we are in 2018, "'and the searches are going high-tech.' It sounds like the National Park System has gotten the word that people are paying attention to reports of missing persons, and that's good news. All we can do is pray that this woman is found alive. Getting back to the similarities that Politis has discovered, one is that many missing persons were with their dogs at the time they disappeared. Well, that kind of makes sense, as big national parks are pretty good places to take your dog for a run. Search Point Reyes National Seashore, R-E-Y-E-S, near San Francisco, and you'll find an incredible variety of headlines. Planes crashing, mountain lions spotted, dead bodies turning up, sharks biting swimmers. All the usual day-to-day events I'm sure you'll see every day in your local park. Point Reyes is well known for its beauty and tranquility, and for being a great place to run the dogs. But not so for two women, unknown to each other, who disappeared there within three weeks of each other, in January of 2010. One, a 77-year-old woman named Sylvia Lang, who brought three dogs with her, just disappeared. She had left two dogs in the car. One was found roaming the beach. Search crews, planes, and dogs were brought in, but not a trace was found. Lang trained dogs for the disabled, and she loved working with them. Her trips to this beach were frequent. She understood waves and the ways of dogs. Three weeks prior to her disappearance, In January 2010, Catherine Pruitt was hiking in Point Reyes Park. She had come with two dogs, one of which she left in her truck, the other which was found alive, his leash caught between some rocks. She was never found, despite a full search. Neither body ever washed up or was found, just disappeared without a trace. In Idaho in 1984, the older sister of a two-year-old boy named Ryan woke up to find he was missing from the room. Surprising to her, because he would have to climb over her to leave, and that would have woken her up. She left the room and asked her parents where he was, seeing them at the breakfast table. Ryan was too little to work the door handles, especially the front door or back door to the house, yet somehow he had gotten out. They had a big dog who stayed out front and raised holy hell whenever anyone came near the house, which was in a nice community near a dock. The dog had not only never made a sound, but on this morning, when the parents rushed out of the house looking for Ryan, the dog seemed very subdued, unusually calm. They looked everywhere and soon called the police, and within an hour there was a full search going on in the community. People were asked to check their trash cans, their boats, anywhere a small boy could climb into. Seven hours later, a searcher found the little boy's body under the boat dock. Later, the cause of death was undetermined. The parents were shocked to see that the boy was in a different style of diaper than the ones they'd supplied. That was weird. They had the dog tested for drugs, but the tests were negative. How the boy got across his sister's body, opened the door to her room, opened the front door, and got past the dog without its making any noise, is still unknown. And this case was never solved. There is probably, as there is in all cases, a legitimate, understandable answer but no one has one yet. This story from Walhalla, Michigan, goes back to 1869. 
Two-year-old Katie Flynn, dog-slash-wolfman abduction. It reads, but canines cannot hold berries with their paws? Perhaps this was the best explanation a two-year-old could give in regards to what creature she encountered. Bears or canines would not exhibit such odd behavior traits. After two-year-old Katie Flynn went missing, searchers the next day jumped a huge fur-covered creature reporters labeled a bear. It jumped into the river and vanished on the other side. Katie was found by the river, alive. She told her father she'd been playing when a big dog wolf walked up to her, held out its paw. She took it, and the two walked off into the woods. The dog left her for a while, then returned with berries which they shared after he held them out for her to take. The creature then scraped up leaves around her. Finally, the big dog lay down next to her and covered her with his body to keep her warm overnight. While Hala, Michigan has had over 100 missing persons since that time. The population of the town is only 2,200. The first alarm that goes off in your mind is that a predator must have chosen this spot, and one person just wasn't enough. One very mysterious disappearance is that of Elisa Lam, L-A-M. The surveillance video of her right before she died is extremely disturbing. Eliza checked in alone to a downtown L.A. hotel. She disappeared. Days later, someone complained the water tasted terrible. They found her body later inside a rooftop water container, a container which was locked from the outside. Then they found security camera footage of her in the hallways and elevators that show her behaving super strangely the night of her disappearance, and it never shows anyone else near her. That case is still unsolved. It's been out there on YouTube for years. Eliza Lamb, L-A-M. In 2011, David Polides launched the Can-Am Missing Project, which catalogs cases of people who disappear or are found on wildlands across North America under what he calls mysterious circumstances. He's written at least seven volumes in his popular Missing 411 book series. Though he remains hesitant to speculate what he believes may be behind the bizarre disappearances, Paulides says he thinks government agencies may be hiding information or denying the fact that there is something truly strange happening. Hearing some of the stories we just related, some mentioned in his interview and books, some from other sources, you'll get that feeling as well. We need to know if this stuff has been going on in your country. Email me at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com or comment at our Facebook page, 1001 Heroes. We'd love to hear from you and we'll use it in a vanished international episode in the near future. Earlier this year, in 2018, a strange disappearance made national headlines when a man turned up on the other side of the country a week after he went missing, oblivious as to how he got there. Luckily, he came to relatively unscathed, but with a confusing chain of events that brought him from upstate New York to Northern California. Danny Filipitas, a 49-year-old Toronto Fire Department captain, was on an annual ski trip with his colleagues in Lake Placid, New York. That's in Adirondack Parkland. After a day of skiing at Whiteface Mountain, Filipitas told his friends he was going to take one last run and meet them at the bottom. But it soon became apparent that Filipitas had disappeared. Despite his shoes and clothes remaining in the lodge and his car in the parking lot, unable to contact his cell phone, friends and family reported him missing to the police, instigating a search party to comb the mountain and surrounding area for the next six days. After 7,000 man-hours of helicopter search and rescue, 
snowmobiles scouring the mountain, and volunteers digging through snow. Philippides turned up in Sacramento, 2,900 miles away, and unaware of how he got there, aside from vague memories of sleeping in a big rig truck. He was still wearing the same ski outfit, including his helmet and goggles. In that time, he had purchased a cell phone and got a haircut. Philippides went missing from the Adirondack Park, one of 30 hotspots for strange disappearances identified by Paulides. Of those hotspots, many are state or nationally protected parks where people recurrently vanish under dubious circumstances. Making note of this some years ago, Paulides filed an FOIA request against the National Park Service asking for a list of missing persons throughout all the national parks in the country. He was aware that the Park Service has a federally trained law enforcement branch familiar with the standard protocols of any police agency, meaning they should have records of missing persons within their jurisdiction. Despite not needing to provide a motive for an FOIA request, Paulides was questioned by an attorney for the Park Service as to why he was interested in obtaining a missing persons record. He was told he would get the information regardless, but that they just wanted to know why. When he said he was just doing research, he was told no such record existed. When he pushed back, asking what it would take to obtain such a list, he was told he would need to pay $1.4 million for a comprehensive national list, or $34,000 for Yosemite alone. After all, they would have to hire a data analyst and typist for him at the rate of $65 an hour, then a researcher, and so on and so on as the costs kept getting higher. This obvious obfuscation got Paulita's interest. His interest in the subject had already been sparked by a conversation he said he had with two off-duty park rangers. The rangers told him there was a multitude of uncanny disappearances in national parks, implying that the Park Service was covering up its inability to explain them, or not devoting an appropriate amount of energy investigating them. The rangers told him of some eerie circumstances surrounding the disappearances, including the recurring discovery of the neatly placed clothes of those who went missing. Paulita stated, The ranger described to me, if you were standing straight up, and you just had your pants on, and you melted directly into your pants, that's what it looked like to him. The pants were laying on the ground in a very neat pile. The missing 411 phenomenon has become so popular it has its own 14,000 member subreddit, an online forum where people discuss different cases, share their personal experiences, and debate the validity of various theories. As for the case of Danny Philippides, it may simply have been a concussion resulting in an unintentional cross-country hitchhiking trip before he woke from a state of delirium. A somewhat normal explanation, but a bizarre one nonetheless. But Paulides says there are quite a few cases like these in the Adirondacks, with less clear circumstances, and much fewer happy endings. I checked here for recent news, and as of a few months ago, Danny had still not returned to his job as a firefighter, and neither he nor the state police, who investigated, and with whom he shared everything he could remember, had any more answers. But Lake Placid, home to the East Coast Winter Olympic Training Facility, in the Adirondacks, is just one park of many in the country that have similar disappearance histories. Some of the largest parks, and also leaders in unexplained disappearances, are Denali, Zion, Crater Lake, Acadia, Grand Canyon, Yosemite, and the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. 
One of the strangest stories that is often brought up is the disappearance of Dennis Martin in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. On June 14, 1969, Martin was out with his family playing in Spence Field, a mountain meadow on the Appalachian Trail between North Carolina and Tennessee. While playing with his nine-year-old brother, another family came along, asking if their boys could play with the Martins. Oddly, that family said their last name was also Martin. While both the Martins' family's kids played hide-and-seek, Dennis's father watched his son until he hid in the bushes for a few minutes. Little did he know that would be the last time he would see his son. Another man, Harold Key and his family, were hiking in the area around the same time, 4.30 p.m., when they heard a loud, sickening scream. Keyes' son pointed out to his father that he thought he saw a bear running through the woods, but the father said the figure looked more like a large, rugged man trying to remain hidden in the brush. Upon hearing about Dennis Martin's disappearance the following day, Key reported his family sighting of the unkempt man running in the woods, though the FBI dismissed it, saying he was too far away to draw a connection. Eventually, the Army's Green Berets were brought in to comb the area, finding no evidence of the boy. But Paulita said there was something strange about their search efforts. They acted autonomously, not conferring with the FBI or local law enforcement, and were heavily armed, as if expecting a serious confrontation. And why send in the Green Berets? But they found nothing. Decades passed, and the Martins stopped speaking to the public about their son's disappearance, until Paulitas made a cold call to their door one day, the same place they had lived since Dennis's vanishing. At first, Martin wouldn't speak about it, but Paulitas convinced him to, telling him he had dedicated his life to studying cases like Dennis's. Martin opened up and told Paulitas that local news agencies didn't report one very significant fact that Key had told the FBI, that the figure he saw running through the woods that day had something slung over its shoulder. He also brought up the fact that there have been 12 other disappearances in that area since his son's, with a single FBI agent assigned to them all. That was until that agent committed suicide one day for unknown reasons. Paulides filed an FOIA request to require any information he could on that agent's investigation, which he eventually obtained. Within those files was a complete lack of any mention of the key family's sighting, a bizarro mission, to say the least. According to Paulides, the National Park Service is aware of wild men, in quotes, who live off the grid in the woods of Appalachia and other forests around the country. These wild people clothe themselves in animal pelts, hence the boy's confusion of seeing a bear. Similar accounts have been reported in places like Louisiana, where a hunter once encountered what he referred to as a feral human. He believed these wild humans may be misconstrued as the mythological Bigfoot. We did an episode on these you can find in our 1001 Heroes archives called The Rise of the Swamp Apes. Reports of encounters with the homeless or transients on the Appalachian Trail aren't uncommon either, though typically they're benign meetings. Conditions are so inhospitable there that vagrants are usually just looking for food or a warm place to sleep. Unfortunately, the Dennis Martin case will likely remain unsolved, in addition to countless others Paulides has so tirelessly documented. Could there be any validity to the assertion that wild or feral humans inhabit those forests, abducting people for unknown reasons?
"'or is it simply an urban legend "'told around the campfire to scare the unwitting? "'And here are more stories. "'July 23, 2015, "'was the eve of Joseph Lloyd Keller's 19th birthday. "'The Cleveland, Tennessee native "'had been spending the summer "'between his freshman and sophomore years "'at Cleveland State Community College "'on a western road trip "'with buddies Colin Gwaltney "'and Christian Fetzner "'in Gwaltney's old Subaru. "'The boys had seen Las Vegas, "'San Francisco, and the Grand Canyon "'before heading to Joe's aunt and uncle's dude ranch, "'the Rainbow Trout Ranch, "'in the San Juan Mountains "'in southwestern Colorado. "'The ranch is in Conejos County, "'which is bigger than Rhode Island, "'with 8,000 residents and no stoplights. "'Conejos, which is Spanish for rabbits, "'is one of the poorest counties in Colorado.' It's also a hell of a place to get lost. While its eastern plains stretch across the agricultural San Luis Valley, its western third rises into the 1.8 million acre Rio Grande National Forest, which sprawls over parts of nine counties. Go missing out here, and your fate relies, in no small part, on which of those nine counties you were in when you disappeared. Joe, a competitive runner, open water swimmer, an obstacle course racer, and Colin, a member of the varsity cross-country team at Division I Tennessee Tech, had been running together often during their trip. Neither was totally acclimatized to the altitude. The ranch sits just below 9,000 feet. Joe was a bit slower than his friend. He suffered from asthma as a three-year-old, but had kicked it by age 12. The workout would be routine, an hour-long run, likely along Forest Road 250, which bisects the ranch and continues into the National Forest, following the Conejos River upstream. Joe left his phone and wallet at the ranch house. He wore only red running shorts, blue trail shoes, and an Iron Man watch. At 4.30 p.m., the friends started out together. Neither runner knew the area, but the old-timers will tell you that even a blind man could find his way out of Conejos Canyon. On the south side, to the runner's left, cattle graze in open meadows along the river. On the north side, ponderosa pines topped the steep tuff until they hit sheer basalt cliffs, a massive canyon wall rising 2,000 feet above the gravel road toward 11,200-foot Black Mountain. As the two young men jogged by the corral, one of the female wranglers yelled, Pick it up! They smiled back, and Joe sprinted up the road before the two settled into their respective paces, with Colin surging ahead. The GPS track on Collins's watch shows him turning right off Forest Road 250 onto the ranch drive and snaking up behind the lodge trying to check out three geologic outcroppings, faith, hope, and charity, that loom over the ranch. But the run became a scramble, so he cut back down toward the road and headed up river. A fly fisherman says he saw Collin 2.5 miles up the road, but not Joe. Collin never encountered his friend. He timed out his run at a pace that led to puking due to the altitude. Colin then moseyed back to the ranch house and waited. An hour later, he started to worry. When Joe didn't show up to get ready for dinner, Colin and Christian drove up the road, honking and waiting for Joe to come limping toward the road like a lost steer. At 7.30 p.m., a small patrol of ranch hands hiked up the rocks toward Faith, the closest formation. By 9.30... There were 35 people out looking. If he was hurt, he would have hurt us, recalled Joe's uncle, David Van Berkham. He was either not conscious or not there. 
The first 24 hours are key, says Robert Kester, a.k.a. Professor Rescue, author of the search and rescue guidebook Lost Person Behavior. Kester was consulted on the Keller case and noted that, like most missing runners, Joe wasn't dressed for a night outside. Plus, he says, it wouldn't have been unusual for a young athlete like Joe to switch from run to scramble mode. Heading for higher ground is a known strategy for a lost person, he says. Maybe you can get a better vista, and based on his age, it might just have been a fun thing to do. Around 10 p.m., the Van Berkhams called the Conejos County Sheriff's Department, and Sheriff Howard Galvez and two deputies showed up around midnight. It was now Joe's birthday. At this point, the effort was still what pros call a hasty search, quick and dirty, focusing on the most logical areas. It was a warm night, and everyone still expected Joe to find his way back at daybreak, with a wild story in tow. That morning, his ranch employees and guests continued the search, Jane Van Berkham alerted Joe's parents, Zoe and Neil. It took the Kellers and their 17-year-old daughter, Hannah, less than 24 hours to get to the ranch from Tennessee, flying into Albuquerque, New Mexico, and renting a car for the three-and-a-half-hour drive north. The family arrived at 2 a.m. In the morning at 6 a.m., the professional search began, starting at what searchers called the point last seen, the ranch's big Ponderosa Pine Gate. A deputy fire chief from La Plata County named Roy Vreeland, 64, and his Belgian Malinois scent dog, Cayenne, picked up a direction of travel, which pointed up Forest Road 250. More dogs arrived from Albuquerque and identified different directions of travel or none at all. Additional firefighters drove over from La Plata County. Everyone on the ground, as is largely the case with search and rescue, were volunteers. But there was nothing to go on. In that first week, the search engaged about 15 dogs and 200 people on foot, horseback, and ATV. An infrared-equipped airplane from the Colorado Division of Fire Prevention and Control flew over the area. Colin's brother Tanner set up a GoFundMe site that paid for a helicopter to search for five hours, and a volunteer flew his fixed-wing aircraft in the canyon multiple times. A guy with a drone buzzed the steep embankments along Highway 17, the closest paved road, and the rock formation Faith, which has a cross on top. A $10,000 reward was posted for information. How far could a shirtless kid in running shoes get? But after several days, volunteers began going home, pulled away by other obligations. The few who remained did interviews, followed up on leads, and worked teams and dogs, but the search was already winding down. We had a very limited number of people, one volunteer said. That's fairly typical in Colorado. You put out calls and people say, well, if he hasn't been found in that time, I have to go to work. The absence of clues left a vacuum that quickly filled with anger, resentment, false hopes, and conspiracy theories. A tourist with a time-stamped receipt from a little gift shop in nearby Horka swore she saw two men on the road, but later changed her story. A psychic reached out on Facebook to report a vision that Joe was west of Sedonia, Arizona. There was even a theory that he'd been kidnapped in order to have his organs harvested and sold on the black market. We feel like he's not in that area. He's been taken from there, Neil Keller would tell a reporter much later. I'm a scientist, Kester says. I'm fond of Oakham's razor. That's the principle that the simplest explanation usually holds true. 
"'You can have a band of terrorists tie him to a tree and interrogate him. "'Is it possible? Yes. Is it likely? No.' "'Joe Keller had just joined the foggy stratum "'of the hundreds or maybe thousands of people "'who have gone missing on our federal public lands. "'Thing is, nobody knows how many.' The National Institute of Justice, the research arm of the Department of Justice, calls unidentified remains and missing persons the nation's silent mass disaster, estimating that on any given day there are between 80,000 and 90,000 people actively listed with law enforcement as missing. The majority of those, of course, disappear in populated areas. There are far more vanished cases than can be told in a single book or podcast like 51-year-old Dale Staling, who in 2013 vanished from a short petroglyphic viewing trail near the gift shop at Colorado's Mesa Verde National Park. Morgan Heimer, a 22-year-old rafting guide, who was wearing a professional-grade personal flotation device when he disappeared in 2015 in Grand Canyon National Park during a hike after setting up camp. Ohio and Chris Fowler, who vanished from the Pacific Crest Trail last fall. Aficionados of the vanished believe that at least 1,600 people, and perhaps many times that number, remain missing on public lands under circumstances that defy easy explanation. Paulides has identified 59 clusters of people missing on federal wildlands in the U.S. and southern Canada. To qualify as a cluster, there must be at least four cases. According to his pins, you want to watch your step in Yosemite, Crater Lake, Yellowstone, Grand Canyon, and Rocky Mountain National Parks. But then, it would seem you want to watch your step everywhere in the wild. The map is very busy. Paulides has spent hundreds of hours writing letters and Freedom of Information Act requests in an attempt to break through National Park Service red tape. He believes the Park Service in particular knows exactly how many people are missing, but won't release the information for fear that the sheer numbers and the ways in which the people went missing would shock the public so badly that visitor numbers would go down. Nine-year-old David Gonzalez went camping with his family in San Bernardino National Forest. At one point, he asked his mother if he could go get some cookies from the family car. Forty minutes passed, and his mother realized that David never returned, and that the cookies he wanted to grab were still inside the car. He was never found alive again. His death is viewed as one of the strange disappearances in national parks. A week later, his badly decomposed body was found only a mile away from where he went missing. Mysteriously, this area was already combed days prior, so this means the boy must have been dropped there by someone or something. An autopsy revealed no trauma and no overt injury. David Gonzalez was just dead without any reason or clue as to why. This already is baffling, especially considering the power of forensics and the skill of investigators. But what makes the case of David Gonzalez so strange is not his disappearance alone. It's the way the local authorities and investigators seem to handle the case. To put it simply, the police and investigators were flippant about it. Any questions asked were answered with vague replies. Even when Paulides asked authorities for records about David, he was met with hostility. The officials claimed that David was dragged off by a mountain lion, despite no injuries that would suggest that to be his fate. No one nearby heard David scream, either. Doesn't that seem a bit strange? 
"'Authorities in most cases involving strange disappearances "'are wrapped with attention "'and will scour every last inch of terrain "'to find a missing child. "'However, when it comes to strange disappearances "'in national parks, "'many officials seem unwilling to be fully open and honest. "'David's parents have gone on record "'to say that they do not believe David got dragged off by a cougar. "'They believe he was kidnapped "'and that he still may be alive somewhere "'and that that body wasn't his.' Some believe that authorities know more than what they're saying. At the very least, it's clear there's a lot more mystery and danger in the woods than they're willing to admit. Not all of the strange disappearances in national parks obviously happen to young children. Thelma Pauline Melton, also called Polly by her friends, was 58 when she vanished during her camping trip with friends in the Great Smoky Mountains. Polly was not exactly a normal candidate for disappearing act. For a number of reasons. For one thing, she had medical problems that caused her to hike at a very slow pace. She also was a happy, well-put-together person that no one believed would have any reason to want to disappear. Simply put, it didn't seem like she would want to do something drastic. To make matters stranger, Melton had been hiking the trail that she had vanished on for over 20 years. She knew the terrain. It wasn't like she got lost. Perhaps that's why her friends were so alarmed when she vanished while hiking with them. Just like the other National Park disappearances, one moment she was there, the next minute she was vanished. She didn't make any noise, and no trace of her was ever found. Then there's Stacy Ann Aras, A-R-R-A-S, hope I'm saying that right. Her disappearance has a cultish online following. On dozens of Reddit threads and chat boards, thousands of people, Strangers intimately familiar with her life obsessively dissect her vanishing. The case is mysterious, eerie, and frustratingly unsolved. Eris went missing from Yosemite National Park more than 30 years ago. She just seems to have disappeared, the park's then-superintendent, Robert Benoise, told the Fresno Bee. It was in the afternoon on July 17, 1981, when a group of six, plus Eris and her father, rode into Sunrise High Sierra Camp on horseback. The camp sits 9,400 feet above sea level and is regarded for its history, being the final stop in Yosemite's Mountain Chalet Loop. It was built in 1961 to make backcountry an alluring destination for tourists, offering stunning wilderness vistas, but also creature comforts like showers and reasonably comfy beds. Eris told her father that she wanted to photograph a nearby lake. It wasn't terribly far, just over a bluff. He declined to accompany his daughter, 14 at the time, but an elderly man from their group would tag along. At some point, the 77-year-old man following her grew tired and sat down to rest. Eris, seemingly determined to reach the water, trekked onward. Back at the camp, the group's tour guide remembered noticing her from afar. She was standing on a rock about 50 yards south of the trail, he said. According to a summary of her official cold case file, that was the last time anyone saw Eris, or the last time anyone is known to have seen her. She vanished that day without a trace, leaving only her camera lens behind. Search and rescue teams eventually stopped looking for Eris, but that hasn't stopped her case from finding new life. Today the teenager is well known among paranormal enthusiasts. Her disappearance and hundreds of others comprise a strange portfolio of mysterious 
national park vanishings, loosely tied together by a few common and dubiously supernatural theories. Okay, we've covered all types of strange disappearances. Everyone who has tried to solve these unexplained mysteries falls into one of two camps. Either that there is a plausible answer that comes from known science, or that something else, call it an evil entity, exists. We discussed the possibility of portals out of which and into which entities might be coming and going. Tied to these portals is the theory of time travel. It is a known fact that German scientists were working on time travel in the late 30s and early 40s. For what nefarious reasons, other than scientific curiosity, no one knows for sure. But knowing that Hitler was a madman and believed he could create a perfect race, possibly he was exploring ways he could change the world in some way by sending agents back or forward in time. Who knows? I know that even the toughest skeptics in our audience have a respect for the late Stephen Hawking. He was a brilliant astro-scientist and was pretty much responsible for giving us the Big Bang Theory. You should know that he admitted that time travel was possible if you could bend light. He had long advocated wormholes, which allow matter to travel through them, although only at specific times and under specific conditions. In the weeks to come, more research on vanished persons and vanished cities, especially from other countries, along with our other 1001 Heroes episodes. This will be an international vanished episode. A big thank you for all of you who have been sending reviews to Apple and for our fans in Australia who have been pushing this up in your country's rankings with both 1001 Heroes and 1001 Classic Short Stories. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.